So the book of Numbers, how did we get here? This is one of those uh, Sundays where I try to sort of recap where we've been the last three summers and also set up this summer as we sort of begin into the book of Numbers. For those of you who don't know, uh, well, how did we get here is sort of a question we ask in two ways. One, how did we get to what Shelley read for us from the book of Numbers? How did we get to the start of book of Numbers? That's sort of the second half of the sermon. The first half, or not a half, a part is, how did this community get here? Well, the first is, is that my first summer here, I was like, I really hate deciding what to preach on. Um, it's hard for me, uh, and it's like I always figure with enough study I could preach on most things in the Bible within reason, um, and so I decided why don't we just do the first five books called the Torah, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and sort of walk through those stories. Now, the first thing I would say is that I, I joke with people is that I prayed that the Lord might return before we got to Leviticus. Um, and as many of you know, last summer that did not happen. And so we walked through the book of Leviticus for, for about 15 weeks um, and, and sort of discovered its mysteries and what it has to teach us as Christians. As, as we worship a God who is in Jesus uh, is marked with the book from his um, circumcision in the gospel of Luke. And moving forward is that Jesus' life is sort of around this book of festivals. And so we did that last summer. And this summer, we have numbers. Now, one of my good friends who's a pastor, he said, you know, I think lots of pastors would benefit from doing this, but they have three reasons they wouldn't do it. And I said, okay, well, what are the three reasons? And he said, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, most pastors feel pretty confident on, uh, on uh, Genesis and Exodus, but when it gets to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we're in a bit of different sphere. But part of what brought us here is that desire to sort of learn from these first five books. I've used this line for the last couple years. There's two lines that I've used the past couple years. The one is, is, is this idea that, that some of the rabbis have is that the whole thing is the Torah, these first five books, and the rest is commentary, the rest of the Old Testament, is commentary on how we rightly live Torah. And it's interesting because you find this as a discussion even Jesus' time. They say, which one of the commandments, 600 and... I can't remember off the top of my head, 628 of them, I think, um, uh, do you think are the most important? Jews live in this relationship to these books, not statically the way that some American Christians think that it's all the same, but they tried to weight it and practice it in ways that made their community a fuller expression of what it means to be God's people here on earth. So Jesus, which do you think are the most important commandments? He replies, as many people know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as you love yourselves. Now, the first answer comes from the book of Deuteronomy in the Shema, chapter 6. And the second after chapter, and this is one of my favorite parts, is you know that Christians don't have to follow Leviticus anymore. To love your neighbor as you love yourself comes from the book of Leviticus. Um, so we follow Leviticus even now in the ways in which it has been weighted for us to say, what does it look like to live these holy lives? What does it look like to be in communion with this God who has expressed himself? And it's interesting because, because many Christians, I think, have this understanding of that Jesus could have invented whatever answer he wanted to at the moment. But what he does is he pulls from this Torah that this community is, is sort of bent around. So the first is that, that this Torah is this ways in which it is, in many ways, a lot of the whole thing. And the rest is commentary. 
And Jesus' life for Christians is the definitive commentary on it to know how it should be weighted. I think as Christians, we, we rightly hold the Gospels and the rest of the Bible on an equal playing field, and that is smart and wise to do. But I do think that we say, if we're going to talk about what Torah is, if we're going to talk about the way that God has been revealed and met with these people, Jesus' life is our interpretive lens for looking at this book, these books, seeing how it is weighted and how it's lived out faithfully in the holiness that which God intended and called us into. The second is this line from Robert Jensen, who I didn't know we'd be using so much Robert Jensen during the Creed series, so uh, if you were here for that, forgive me, but none of, I'm the only one who knows who Robert Jensen is, so maybe that's not that big of a deal. Um, and he, he died like two or three years ago. But the, the phrase that we have used from Robert Jensen is that God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having previously raised um, Israel out of Egypt. I'll say it again because I think it's very important that when he was asked who God is, he would say, God is whoever has raised Jesus from the dead and who has previously raised Israel out of Egypt. That God is this one who sort of has this history with these people and is this one who is an active definitively both in the raising up of the people out of Egypt in slavery and both of the raising up of Jesus and resurrection power into new life. This is who God is. And the thing I really like about this is it tells us that this story, these stories, are an echo of what we see played out in Jesus' ministry. We'll get to that a little bit later with how that works in the book of Numbers. But what happens in Torah is this sort of way of expressing who Jesus is in his life. So Don read for us from the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, has a mirror in Jesus' story from the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus' life story, um, there's a theologian who used the phrase, that it is story-shaping story. Um, that, that Jesus is in somehow shaping this story and practicing this story out in the world all over again. And yet he re-encapsulates story, Israel's story, a story of um, uh, lots of faults and bumps around the way, which we will primarily hear a lot of in the book of Numbers. Faithfulness is not a theme that you find in the book of Numbers expressed very fully in God's people. Um, but he lives it out faithfully. He lives out these challenges faithfully. And so he is one who faithfully lives Israel's story for Israel. He is one who faithfully lives the story that God has called us into for our sakes as well. He is one who faithfully models this out into the world. And so we see all these sort of instances in which the Gospels are mirroring these stories we have here. But the second question is, how did we get here today? And so I wanted to take just a minute to recap Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus as briefly as I can. Now, the clock was broken a couple minutes ago, but somebody fixed it, knowing that you could re recap Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus for days on end. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that's back on track. Um, I thought I was going to have to check my watch. Um, we have these three books that we've already sort of walked through, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And most of us are familiar with the overall scope of them, but I think they still provide some helpful things to go back to. For instance, the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth that Don read for us. And, and I should pause, I've been meaning to do this. This, uh, this thing that Chris made for us is this, like a scroll, like what these would have been preserved on. And what they have is the title of the Hebrew books, the, the, the title of each of these books in Hebrew. 
which is not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's uh, in the beginning, beginning. These are the names, which is uh, from the beginning of Exodus. They're, they're normally from within the first couple lines of the book in Hebrew. Vaikra, that's Leviticus, and the Lord said to Moses, um, uh, Bersh, I wrote these down and I meant to practice. Benabar, which is Numbers, which is, so we call the book Numbers, which is not an exciting name if you're struggling to get into the book of Numbers. Um, but they call it into the wilderness, which comes from this first line, is that the Lord speaks to Moses in the temple in the wilderness or in the desert. And the last one is these are the words, the book of Deuteronomy. And so we have this up to sort of remind us of both that, uh, that these books existed before the church renamed them, which with oddly enough Latin <laughs> names, uh, which is like if you go to seminary today you, and you're not Catholic, you learn Greek and Hebrew, but you don't even learn Latin. But we... We call them all by Latin names. But I think it's helpful for us to know these other names. And I think they set us on a different plane sometimes, particularly with numbers, which we'll get into. But, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing that I always like to, to point, and we did two Sundays on this with Genesis, and that may not seem like a lot, but Genesis has a lot in it. And I only think I took 12 to get through all of it. So we did two Sundays on the pre-fall stuff. Because Christians are often known as people who really understand that the world is flawed and broken. It's often sometimes the first news we'll give people. Do you accept that you are flawed and broken, or the sinner in need of grace? Well, it's not that that's not true. We often forget that the Bible begins with the story of the goodness of God's creation and creating the world and calling it good and setting humanity in a place of goodness. We don't start off as fractured icons of God. We start off as the image of God here on earth in communion with him in the ways in which we walked with him in the garden. So the first word of Christianity, of Judaism, isn't bad news. It's actually good news. God created and ordered a space for humanity to flourish. God made a world for humanity to begin to be able to take root and to walk with him and to find life in him. This was the world that God created. But then we all know what happens next or have a decent understanding is that this fall and this fracturedness happens to that thing. But what the story preserves for us, what Genesis preserves for us, is that this is human action. God did not set out to make a broken and fractured world. Humans, within their own choice, within their own reason, within their own time, decided they wanted to be like God, and they took the fruit, and they created a world that is now fractured. And you can read the curses in the way in which they reverberate throughout life, that you'll have toil, that the childbirth becomes painful, that the things that were meant to be good, the life in which we were created for, now becomes a place of suffering. And this was important when we went through it, and it still is today, is that what happens is actually that spirals out of this, is we talked about the fall, but we forget that the first acts after the fall are acts of violence. It's not just enough that, that this world is fractured, but what happens is, is humans begin to turn against each other. This is the Cain and Abel story right after this, is, is that the blood cries out to the grod, uh, ground from God, which is the blood spilled by a human by another human. It's violence is the first thing that sort of breaks open in this story. And so when we think about God's rescue mission, it's going to include the preparing of humans towards nonviolence, towards living peaceably with one another. 
We were not intended to be that way. And the first effects of the fall of being vilest help us see that this is not the way in which we are meant to be. And what happens is, is this violence spins out of control all the way up to Babel. And Babel um, uh, has this, is, is, or actually, yeah, up to Babel, but also to Noah's story. Did anybody see the Darren Afronsky Noah a couple years ago? Uh, that was not really about Noah at all, but had some good Noah bits. But one of the amazing parts about that story is when, the, when Noah ends up at the outskirts of the city, the violence captured within it gives you a sense of what the book is talking about on how human, humanity spun out of control into this violence. So what happens is, is, is that get, then God washes the world. God sort of cleanses the world. And yet this solution doesn't seem to work almost instantly. And God says, never again will I do that. And we get to Babel, and, and one of the things that I tried to stress is that Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 is this sort of prehistory place. doesn't mean it's not history, doesn't mean it didn't happen. But what it does is it's telling these stories in this like greater sphere of like, this is the story of humanity. This is the story of human dysfunction and fallenness. This is the human story of turning against God. This is the, the human story of brother killing brother. Uh, which we have our own story of in this country, funny enough. Um, it all starts here. And the exploitation and uh, slavery and all that sort of comes out of this spot. But what happens is God calls one person, Abraham, to sort of begin a reparation mission for what this is by calling out a people in the world. This is what we called, and it's still helpful to remember, the scandal, uh, which I didn't come up with this phrase, the scandal of particularity. Oh, I had... Man, I'm really failing on this. Where are we at? We're still in Genesis. Um, uh, the scandal of particularity is that I got the titles up there. Um, we had this scandal of particularity in calling one person out among the nations. And if you remember, Moses or Noah was blameless in his generation, but Abraham seems to just be called to be called. It's a bizarre thing that God's new repairing mission for this world begins with just one family. A barren family at that, which, which brings us to God's patterns of taking things that are empty and filling them. This is also in the creation story. And so what we have in the rest of this book is the story of, of this, this man and this wife's family sort of journey and also uh, their kids. And it, and it sort of spirals out of control from, the, well, spirals into control and out of control and back and forth. And there's a lot that goes on in these stories between the patriarchs and sort of moving through these things. But what he calls is, is this is one family to sort of prepare the way. And what he says in covenant to these family at two different times is, one, I will make you a great nation. You will be large in number. Count the stars, and that's what you will be. The second is, is that you will have land. You will have a place in the world. There's one other thing I want to say about that. That Remember, we'll pick up right there. I forgot this other thing. Is that they are blessed to be a blessing to the world and to the nations. Their blessing is actually not a blessing for them to keep themselves, but a blessing in the ways in which this community is going to model to the world God's faithfulness. Got that? So they're not just blessed for their own sake. They're not just called out to be like, we're better than everybody else. But they're called in some ways to be good news for people who aren't in this clan, in this body, in this people. Picking up back where we were. <laughs> Uh, at the end of the book, the family has Abraham uh, and Sarah's tomb, and that's it. And what happens is their son, Joseph, who 
who has been betrayed by his brothers, and there's this very important line towards the end of the book, is that what they intended for evil in this betrayal of him and of leaving for death, God intended for good. And what happens is, is that they move off into Egypt, and that's where they are. Now, at the end of this book, they're about 70 people, which is not a great nation. Now we're back on track. The book of Exodus begins with, these are the names of the generations that were in Egypt. And about 400 years pass, if I'm, I studied this, but then I, dates just don't work for me, despite being a history major. Um, uh, the, uh, about 400 years pass, and they are a great nation within Egypt. And what happens is, is the previous pharaoh dies. And another pharaoh dies, and they have forgotten about that they are the ones who brought food that saved the people. And as they grow and grow and grow as a people, this pharaoh decides that it would be better for their firstborn sons to toss into the, into the, the, the Nile. Um, that it would be better to sort of practice infant side. Now, to begin to see that this is the ways in which humanity spins out of control. This isn't just pharaoh being evil. This is something we know back from Genesis, is that humanity can become unhinged in these ways. And so that is his solution. And, and the story of the midwives is one of my favorite stories that we talked about in that passage. What happens is they're growing and growing, and, and the most important line that we hear is, is that God heard their cry, that God heard the cry of his people. It was important for us to remember God is one who hears crying people. God hears people who cry out in this way. Now, as, as much as, as we prefer it to be instantaneous, this is 400 years, and I don't know how many years it was bad for, but God does hear the corporate cry of these people, and he raises up Moses in this weird way to sort of rescue them. Now, now Kelly was asking me the other day, Kelly didn't grow up as a Christian, and like many Christians who started later, has not spent a lot of time with the Torah. She was like, is Moses in numbers? I was like, Moses, like, after he comes on the scene, never leaves. Um, he's there for the rest of it, uh, which is where the Christian tradition and, and some of the Jewish tradition claims that he actually wrote all these books down, um, which isn't contained within the books. It doesn't say that Moses wrote this down, but that's where it comes from, is that Moses wrote all these books down. So the second he shows up on the scene, he doesn't leave till he, spoiler alert, dies at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, but that's next summer. Um, uh, so we have this M Moses character who sort of arises on the scene, and God calls him out and gives him his name in a way that he is going to model this sort of faithfulness to these people. He's going to share this name with these people. And what God, we talked about, and this is going through the whole book of Leviticus, but I have a little bit more to say, is that God is searching for a body on earth to reside in. They're moving from a people who was no people to a people who was a nation. And the first time you sort of see them called this sort of nation thing is when they're brought through the Red Sea. Is that when God brings them to this place in which nobody else can help them except for God. And he parts the seas and they walk through them, which St. Which Paul kind of says is, is um, Moses baptizing these people. They become people who belong to God on the other side of the sea. They become this nation that is Israel. So if you're tracking the promises, this is, this is if you read the Bible too slow, um, you miss this stuff. If you're tracking the promises, is that they are now a great people. They have now become large. And as we get to numbers next week, they've become very large in a lot of ways, a big nation. But they still have no land. 
Well, what God does is he rescues them and brings them out to Sinai. Now, Sinai from the book of Numbers was three months' journey from Egypt. So they traveled for three months, and they get to Sinai. And the people throughout this generation, which Numbers proposes that the new generation is the one that's going to inherit the, the, the promised land, that what happens in the book of Numbers is this generation, through its complaining, through its uh, disbelief, through its desire to go back to Egypt, is one in which it can't inherit the land that God has promised. And one of the things that we talked about is what God is doing with these people, particularly at some of these points along the journey, is doing therapy for them. You know, most of us haven't dealt with this, but if you help people who leave abusive relationships, either as children or adults, there's this rebuilding patterns of trust and helping them. Or, or better example is when I was a CASA, we would help kids that had food issues because they grew up in houses where they didn't have enough food. And so what we did was we would give them a backpack, and whenever food went out of it, we would refill it to help them learn to trust that food will be there for them. They don't need to overgorge themselves whenever it's out. That they learn slowly over time to accept that there is some sort of care that's going to keep filling this place and this void for them. And I think that's an apt analogy for what God tries to do with these people in the desert. But Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and they agree to them. And then he goes back up the mountain, and while he's up there, they build, they violate basically all of them. But certainly that they shouldn't make an image out of this God, and they shouldn't worship other gods by making this golden calf. What causes this to come down is that Moses comes down and he breaks the tablets, the stone tablets, and he finds that, that the, the covenant is broken in sort of what happens here. And what Moses does, and we, it was a very, it's a hard scene to sort of say in summary, but Moses and God sort of um, come to an agreement, work out a thing, that God's name is worth protecting, and God will be a God who is slow to anger. God is a God will be compassionate. This is where we see grace already playing out in the Old Testament. And so they had these instructions that Moses was getting to build this temple. And God still chooses to reside in this temple, chooses to be with these people despite their wayward ways. Is that he is going to take up residency in the world and be with them in this tabernacle. Again, connecting to Jesus' story, in the beginning of John it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us in the Greek. That God takes up residency again in the world. Um, this is part of this story. And so the book of Exodus, which many people get confused about, actually only half of it's about the rescue from Egypt. The half of it is, the other half is these instructions for this temple, what happens with the golden calf, and then instructions for the temple again, and then they build the temple and Moses, or the tabernacle, and Moses can't go into it. Which brings us to the book of Leviticus. Everybody's favorite book now, right? You know, yeah, sure. Uh, if you didn't live through 22 sermons on it, you don't know what you're missing. Um, this brings us to the book of Leviticus. And what Leviticus does is it begins to provide this sort of system in which the people can enter into God's presence and worship with him. It starts out of order with these offerings that they would provide, offerings for peace, offerings for sins, offerings that they would offer up to God, and so that they would be meeting with God at this place. They would be in somehow corresponding with this God through this site on earth, that God has become magnified in this presence. We say that God is present everywhere, but somehow he's choosing to become magnified within this tent in the middle of the wilderness amongst his people who have no land but are great, like in size, uh, in number. 
Um, and this is where he chooses to locate himself in the world. And then we find out about this calling of Aaron's priests. Um, something goes wrong, two of them die. Um, and then there's these purity codes. The book of Leviticus, which I didn't draw out, has this interesting, it starts with ritual, it ends with ritual, it moves to um, priests, it ends with instructions for priests, it uh, has a um, holiness code, primarily f um, food, if you remember you don't eat uh, crab if you're Jewish or bacon, primarily food laws, and then it has this other holiness code, and this is where God says, you will be holy as I am holy, and he's already stated his desire to create a kingdom of priests, a holy people, is that God states this here, and this is where we find some amazing testimony about justice. I mean, the, a lot of social justice teaching can come right out of this uh, 17 through 20 in the chapter book of Leviticus about how you're going to treat the foreigner and the immigrant, how you're going to treat the poor among you, how you're going to provide rest for people on your land. Um, and so there were festivals after that, but this is that that became deeply meaningful for me sitting with that part afterwards. But what makes up the center of the book is this day of atonement where two groats are brought into the sanctuary. One is talked to. Uh, the priest names the sins of the people to the one goat. And that goat goes off into the wilderness, sadly to die. <laughs> and the other goat is slaughtered and brought into the sanctuary. And what happens in this moment is it's shown that God is a God who's going to forgive these people's sins. That God is going to provide a way for them to sort of confess their sins. And this is, uh, we, this week we start confession again as a regular part of our service, is it helps you take the weight off. You can crush yourself under the burden of carrying that stuff. But one of the images I said is that imagine you have a goat that you can talk to about this and send off in the wilderness to die. He takes them away from you. And so we talk about how Jesus is like this, um, and Jesus is also like the Passover lamb that we didn't talk about in Exodus, but I'm trying to catch up with time here. And that brings us to where we start in the book of Numbers. And what it says in the beginning of the book of Numbers is that, that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So what happened at the end of Exodus is that Moses couldn't enter into the tent of meeting. They received all this law about how they are to be this God's people in the world. Odd parts, celebration parts, justice parts, priest parts, and what happens after that is somehow now, when we start the book of Numbers, God, er, Moses has moved into the tent of meeting, that Leviticus has made a way for God to sort of move, or for people to move into the space. And so Moses here is, is entering into that place. Now the book of Numbers is, is where we get, and, and the first thing is that the, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Redemption history, Torah, but certainly the New Testament too. The Lord spoke is a phrase that we get used to, but it is one stop worth stopping and pausing for. That God created the universe at the beginning of this, has called out this people, and he speaks to them. This is redemption history. This is how it works. Is It often unfolds with this spoken word, that God speaks to the people. That saving history is sort of born here. And so to give a little timeline on how we got here, Egypt to Sinai, three months. At Sinai, receiving the law, building the tabernacle, all this, nine months. Um, which is, you know, a lot of information in a very short period of time. 
um, nine months. And it's, it, I like the nine-month one at Sinai because Moses later will say to God, you know, you birth these people, you carry them around like a wet nurse, which this nine-month time has different meaning when you think about it that way. So they spend nine months at Sinai, and then they have two months of prep, which these two months of prep, this is my outline of the book of Numbers um, with my glorious handwriting. Um, they have two months that sort of take place between the book of Numbers 1 through 10. Then they travel uh, to Paran, and that's, that's about the two months too. From chapters uh, 13 to 25, 38 years happens and then about a couple other months at the end at the edge of Moab before they enter the land now according to most people this journey is about 150 miles from Sinai to the promised land it takes them about 38 to 40 years to get there people somebody asked me um, where did this happen friend asked me what my theme was for the book of Numbers. I forget what I was asking for, but I was like, a camping trip gone wrong was sort of one of my, um, uh, a camping trip in which you do everything wrong, but somehow God is faithful through it. It's the story of this time in the wilderness that these people sort of experience, in which, in which this first generation finds itself unable to leave the past world. Become a refrain again that we would have been better off dying in Egypt. And their disbelief that this God can be good for them causes all of them except for two to die off in this desert, to fall into the sand of this place so that their children, God does not give up on them, so that their children can be brought into this land. So our boring title of this book, the book of Numbers, comes from the fact that you count the people twice in the book of Numbers. In the beginning, chapter two-ish, a little bit longer, you count all the people. And it is fun to read, let me tell you. Um, so when you listen to it on an audio Bible, it becomes, um, uh, what Jonathan described the, the bless the Lord, my soul. Like you begin to get into it and things begin to fade. You listen to this and you're like, I'm not really paying attention. I'm hearing the Bible um, and yet things are fading into the distance. And it's nice that this is being read to me, but to pay attention to it is hard. Um, and what happens is that you get this number of uh, 600,000, thousand men if I'm remembering correctly and then at the end of the book they count again and you get the same number God has been faithful not to lose people on this journey that they've they've become whole again in this journey in some ways and so they find themselves at the edge of the wilderness at the end of the book about to enter into the land so now we're done with the book of numbers I don't have to do the book of numbers um this is Origen talking about the book of Numbers early in church history, second century. When the Gospels or the Apostles or the Psalms are read, another person joyfully receives them, gladly embraces them. But if the book of Numbers is read to him, and especially those passages we have now in hand, he will judge that there is nothing helpful, nothing as a remedy for his weakness or benefit for the salvation of his soul. He will constantly spit them out as heavy food and burdensome, as heavy and burdensome food. Ringing endorsement for the book of Numbers from Origen. Origen sought in his interpretation that goes on after this to rescue the book of Numbers to show how it is helpful for the soul. How it is food for the journey. How God can meet people here. 
This was Origen's goal when he set this out. And so it is here with me to sort of begin to think about this theme today is what does it mean to be into the wilderness? What does it mean to be in the places in which you can no longer depend on yourself for self-sufficiency? There isn't enough water out here for these people. There isn't enough food out here for this people. There isn't enough um, provision or, or ways in which they can secure their own future. It was a commentator this week who was pointing out in our postmodern situation, um, there is perhaps no better description for the sphere that Christians find themselves in than the wilderness that we find ourselves in a world that we don't quite understand. We can't secure our own future. We have to rely on God, and we have to find ways to be faithful to that. And this story is, is helpful for us, too, because it shows, which is a pattern throughout the rest of the Bible, and, it, and, and Jonathan's uh, read the Psalm, Psalm 78, for us this morning, that the people forgot this, that, that, that we need to remember this because we will fall along the journey. And then on the other side, that God will remain faithful and bring us into the land that's before us. That God has provision for us. And so in the Gospels, uh, let's pick Mark. Jesus is cast out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Forty days and forty nights. It is not for us to find the way and the time to live these forty days or 38 years, faithfully all by ourselves, but to trust in the one who did it for us. Jesus becomes the one who's able to withstand these temptations and these trials. There's a reason why this is told in all the Gospels except for John. Um, this story of, of his trial out there, it mirrors... Um, uh, Noah's, it mirrors Moses, it mirrors all these things. And what happens is, is Jesus becomes the one who's able to faithfully withhold those pressures. And so for us, as we find ourselves caught in the wilderness, uh, in the wilderness of, of sort of this, I think, my hope, is that as we journey through the book of Numbers, we can find ourselves there. We can find ourselves there in the ways in which we turn back. We, when we talked through the book of Exodus, we talked about how slavery um, to Pharaoh becomes this sort of metaphor for slavery to sin and death. And if you're like, you know, 99% of humanity, sometimes it's comforting to be able to go back to your slavery, to your sin, to the places of death, because at least there you know what happens when the alarm goes off. You go to work. You come back. You're mistreated by your pharaoh, the handmaidens, but at least you know the schedule there. We feel this temptation, I think, in our own lives to go back to those patterns. Well, it would be better if I were still in Egypt. It would be better if I was still left in that place. So we'll find ourselves in that. And I hope we also begin to find ourselves in these faithful representatives who also show up in this story. Through God's Spirit, through what God has done in pouring out his spirit on us, is that we become these people who Moses will lament in the book of Numbers. Uh, there's two guys prophesying. Moses tells them to stop. Oh, but I wish you all would prophesy. Oh, I wish that you would all live holy lives. 
through God's Spirit, his outpouring at Pentecost, we become people who can be lifted up out of that too. I think both temptations live for the church. And yet it is for us to find Jesus in the wilderness too in this story. To find the faithful one who can go to the brink. Not curse, not leave behind, not wish for a better life back where they knew what would happen. But to trust God in providing for a new future and a new life that's beyond the edge of the wilderness. Let us pray. God, you have been faithful to us. The story of the Torah, of these first five books, is the story of your faithfulness to a people. And in many ways, a people like us who don't deserve it. And yet, there you are. God, we ask that you would come to enliven both the first three books and this book we find ourselves in this year. 